Welcome everyone to this episode of this one time at OU. We're very grateful and excited to have George Eberts on this evening. George, good evening. How are you? I'm doing fine. How about you? I can't complain. All is well. Except I'm not in Athens. Are you in Athens now? Yes, I am. I'm in the basement of Clippinger Laboratory Building here on campus at OU. So you're in a much better place than I am, even though it's a basement. Uh-huh. Well, George, tell me, are you an Athens native? Are you, are you born and raised in Athens? No, actually, I'm a uh, urban refugee from Columbus. I uh, grew up in Columbus, and that includes going to college at Ohio State. And I had a degree in this thing called medical communications. It's kind of an odd bird, and it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, at the time, it was part of the School of Allied Medical Professions, and a degree in medical communications got me into a job with an interactive medical television system called the Ohio Valley Medical Microwave Television System. It interconnected Columbus, two places in Athens, Holzer Medical Center and Gallipolis. And it was eventually going to include more Southeast Ohio rural hospital sites. This was before OU got uh, the College of Osteopathic Medicine. Um, once they got that college, it took over the microwave system and it actually still exists in the sense that OU College of Medicine uses it for classroom contact at remote sites. Uh, but meanwhile, I ended up at the Athens Mental Health Center uh, as a part of having that job. I, I was in Columbus originally at the University Hospital's microwave station, and then I decided to chase an eclipse of the sun uh, down to Columbia and spend a few months doing bus rides throughout South America. I got back from South America and I took over the job of the guy who was the microwave coordinator in Athens. And here I am. I got picked up by the Department of Mental Health Psychiatric Hospital and I became uh, the staff education specialist. Uh, that place is still in existence. They didn't just kick out all the patients out and close the place as is commonly thought. They actually built a new building, moved us into it in 1993, and it's still in existence. I was one of the last existing staff that made the switch. Um, and the, there was only like when I left in full-time work in 06, there was only one patient left that had come over in 93. So there's been a total turnover since then. Um, that job. Meanwhile, I get to teaching astronomy just for fun, a hobby level class. And I asked OU if I could use some of their telescopes and they hired me to point them at night and I got to uh, develop and teach the astronomy 1400 class that I do today. So my, my probation officer won't let me have telescopes. Now, uh, so tell me about the microwave. The microwave, was that like a precursor to telemedicine? I mean, when yes. you, you had there so you could set up video cameras on either side? Yep. I'll tell you what, if you want to go to uh, Netflix and uh, get a movie. It's actually a four-part docu-series called Monsters Inside. It's all about Billy Milligan, who was our most famous patient right around that time. Uh, and I get to be in it several times during episode three. I will check it out. Tell us how, so you mentioned you're, you're there, you're in the medical field, kind of a communication with Athens is known for. So that worked out well. You come to the mental um, hospital, it gets transitioned 
the school says, hey, we like what you know about the stars, we'll let you do that. And then how did you become a, a guide at the hospital? Because I stopped by the Kennedy Museum of Art, which occupies a, a lot of those grounds now. And they said, you got to go see George. He knows everything about it. How did that come about? Well, I started uh, as uh, I started doing tours for students and interns uh, as part of staff education specialists. Uh, among the other things I would do, orientation for new staff, uh, update on training for existing staff like CPR update, safety training, stuff like that. And also I could hustle the continuing education units applicable to license renewal for homegrown in-services. That was my main job, running the student intern and uh, student nurse program, stuff like that was a part of it. So I gave student nurses tours every semester. And we had, I think, three different student nurse groups. We had them from three different colleges in the region. We were there for orientation. The nursing program, I graduated in 91. It wasn't as strong. It seems very robust. And I didn't see as much about the DOs that I did when I was there. Maybe it was just starting there. And this was, again, I graduated in 91. But the nursing program seems fantastic there at OU. Yeah, it wasn't one of, actually, tell you the truth, it was not one of the three programs we had up on the hill. We had Hawking College was the main program, Rio Grande and Marietta College. They all sent us student nurses. OU at the time was just, uh, if you're already like an LPN, you could get an, or an RN, you could get a BSN by going through OU, but they didn't send out student nurses. They do now. Before I left uh, 10 years ago, they began to send student nurses to uh, do their clinical work, their psych placement at Athens. <laughs> but that got me into the attic and into the offbeat parts of the building. Um, and I knew all, everybody that worked in that place. So I, if I saw something I wondered about, I could go ask old timers what they knew about it. Uh, we had people there in the late 70s, early 80s who had begun working there in the 50s. Wow. So I had a great source of storytellers and anecdotes as well as good uh, historical information. So as supervisor of the staff librarian, I got all of the, they had old newspapers and pamphlets and brochures and magazine articles where we were mentioned and I read all that. So I got to be a specialist in the history of that place. That's a huge history. So here's what I know about it. Tell me if I'm right or wrong, and then maybe you can take off where I'm wrong. It's um, started, I'm guessing, I don't know the answer to that, late 1800s. It, um, it housed uh, mental patients that really could be, you didn't, you know, you know intemperance, uh, epilepsy, and then you worked there. I mean, you lived there, but you also worked there. They had a farm, they had a machine shop, and then it changed a lot after they rerouted the Hocking River. Um, that they didn't have as much land. And then as it went, I know when I was there in the late 80s, there was maybe 300 patients. And of course, Billy Milligan uh, made it most popular. We had an episode about Billy Milligan and I, I got some flack for it because I thought that obviously knowing his past was, was terrible, but he seemed to know how to play the game to his advantage. And Boy, that's a fact. Yeah, and so uh, how did I do on history? And tell me what, how it really started. Well, I think you collapsed a few things closer than they were. Um, it started off in 1870, 
Uh, it opened in 1874, and it was actually founded in 1868. It was only founded three years after the end of the Civil War. Wow. In 78, and um, at that point, it instantly got 570 patients, which was what it was built for. Um, it took them just you know, like two years to fill up completely. Such was the demand for lunatic asylum beds at the time. The place was originally called Athens Lunatic Asylum. And it was built uh, according to the Kirkbride plan, which makes the architecture and the building itself incredibly significant in terms of architectural history and heritage. The Kirkbride plan, you got this big building in the middle. Ours has towers on top. And then the wings go out a little ways, they drop back, they go out further, they drop back and they go out yet again. So there's like three offset wings on both sides of the building. And uh, Dr. Walt, uh, Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride practiced out of Pennsylvania. He was the founding father of the American Psychiatric Association. And he just had 110 little reasons why that was the best way to do a lunatic asylum. And about 60 or 70 of these Kirkbride buildings were made um, in Ohio. You have them also in Columbus and Dayton. So there's Kirkbride buildings still standing all over the country. And um, you worked on the land, growing your own food by your labor. Uh, you became a citizen. You worked with your fellows and had to get along. In a way, this was mainstreaming in the 1800s. This is the way you know three out of four Americans lived anyway, family farms. So there though, because I mean, I, I read some stories, but it seems like, I mean, they weren't necessarily inmates, right? They had some freedoms, but like, what was the number one back then when it started? Were they just like, I guess we'd call it PTSD from civil war that went there? Well, there was some of that for sure, but insanity, uh, its flagship illness is schizophrenia. Okay, there's other ways of being mentally ill, but schizophrenia is the big daddy in the conversation here. And when you're schizophrenic, you're pretty much useless uh, in terms of productive labor and getting along with people and understanding where you are and what's going on. So they had to have a lot of structure and people who were severely mentally ill were kept close track of probably let off their hallway. They weren't locked in their rooms. Uh, they'd be locked on a hallway with bedrooms of, for other people too. Violent people? Not usually. Uh, violent maybe uh, sometimes, but not criminally insane. The criminally insane never came to Athens per se. When I started working there in the late 70s, they were, there were treatment units for the criminally insane at Dayton and Columbus. And if you were from the state of Ohio and you had that big of a problem with your behavior, they put you in either Dayton or Columbus. You got some people who could be kind of ornery sometimes, let's say. Uh, but it was understood and appreciated that society was trying to help you because before they invented lunatic asylums, which they did in the mid 1800s, uh, life was brutish and short if you're mentally, if you skitzed out, as we would say today, uh, you're probably dead in a few years, and it may be of starvation or beating up as much as anything else. So the Create Lunatic Asylums was a big step forward for the conscience of the nation. Um, and we were, of course, following suit of European countries at the time that were also creating lunatic asylums. 
get the mentally unfortunate and give them a place to live, clothes to wear, decent food, and make people work together as a team, uh, sustaining themselves and being citizens of their community. That was part of, that was the therapies. They, they had no medicine in the 1800s. Okay, and so that kind of what they call milieu therapy, being a part of the big picture as a patient, that was one thing. And the other thing was you uh, give them a place to live and surround them by both architectural and natural beauty. So that as they wander the grounds in the evening, tired from working the fields, well-fed from the food they grew themselves, they're surrounded by natural and architectural beauty. And that would bring out the best in them and soothe the troubled souls. Very well kept because that the patients, that was part of their job too. So it wasn't like you think of old rundown, even prisons today, but now everyone's keeping, you know, that was their job, it was their house. And so they kept it up, I would think. Oh yeah, there was a lot of pride. And the old ladies would help bake the Thanksgiving turkeys. And, you know, they maybe had a Christmas play. There was a lot of good things here. Um, I think the, um, the worst mental institution situations were way before our place was founded in a time when maybe a county home or something like that doubled as a lunatic asylum. Um, there's horror stories from Europe in the early 1800s back into the 17, 1600s of half naked people clamoring for some sunlight at the window and, you know, really ugly scenes. But um, uh, you, you I could tell from not only the old staff members, but the old patients, what was the quality of life. And uh, none of them ever described a bad situation to me. And uh, part of it is that Athens was always a small town, rural institution. And life was known to be better in small town rural institutions than it was in urban locations for many reasons. First of all, urban asylums are even worse overcrowded than Athens ever got. And nobody in there knew each other, including the staff that are working there. Um, and the staff turnover was really high because the guy comes up from Kentucky, can't get a job at the steel mill for uh, six months. So he works the asylum to get by, and then when the steel mill hires him, he's gone. So turnover among the staff, total anonymity of people working and living there, and enormous overcrowding made urban facilities a lot uglier than rural ones. Rural ones, like at our place, the patient population and the staff come from surrounding region of seven or eight counties. This is Gallup Police area, Marietta area, um, Logan, Portsmouth. These are all areas that sent their patients to Athens. Did the families put them in or are there any state? I know you mentioned the criminally insane. I know in reading the lives of Billy Milligan, that was very place you wanted, didn't want to go there, but would a, a judge send someone to Athens or was it just a family that sent them? Uh, you had to get someone like a judge or a doctor sign off on the admission. Okay. And as time went by, the criteria became more strict and you would have evolved from just having a doctor sign you in to having to have a judge because you're also dealing with taxpayer dollars. These places are publicly funded and um, people kind of, at first they think, that's great. We got this la la land up on the hill. 
and lots of our relatives worked there. I mean, if you grew up in Athens, you had an uncle or a cousin that worked there for sure. Good jobs, union scale, a lot of lo longevity. But as time goes by, the uh, make the taxpayers get their money's worth type ethic sets in. So that makes it harder to get people admitted. If they only kind of marginally need to be there, it's, it's harder to get them in. Um, and big changes happened twice along the way. First of all, in 1954, way back in the Eisenhower era, um, the human race finally came up with a drug that actually made psychotic, schizophrenic type people think more clearly. And one of the main points I'd like to get across is that mental health medication is not tranquilizing. It has historically had tranquilization as a side effect, but that's not why you're giving people these drugs. There's a common myth, stereotype, media, movie land or whatever that they're crazy, you give them drugs and it's like, dude. Yeah, one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of symbolized that, I think. Yes, it does, unfortunately. Well, the best psychiatric meds help you think better. They don't just tranquilize you. Although the ones that came out in 1954, yeah, they, they, they had a lot of tranquilizing going on. That drug, by the way, was called Thorazine. And I knew people at Athens when I first got there, old patients that had not had been there before Thorazine and then they started getting Thorazine in the late 50s. And they said, man, it was really something. You have no idea how much it clears your head and makes everything make more sense. Unfortunately, it makes you drool and it makes you walk without swinging your arms and it makes you sleep a lot more. But um, for the psychotic people, it was God's gift to the institution. And so there was a wave of uh, discharges in the late 50s and pretty much all through the 60s because of Thorazine. They would come up with son of Thorazine and cousin of Thorazine, a bastard child of Thorazine, different drugs that were, you could think of them as being cloned off the Thorazine model. And they all had the same side effects of drool and walk without swinging your arms and, and things like that. It's a cluster of symptoms called tardive dyskinesia. And it's funny that even now uh, on late night TVs, they've gotten around to having drugs for everything from HIV to male erectile dysfunction. Well, now you're hearing advertisements on late night TV for drugs to combat uh, tardive dyskinesia. They call it TD. And back in the day, if you had TD, it meant you were on a psychotic med. And that meant that you had been in a facility like Athens. So everything has changed a lot. And uh, okay, so the drug scene got much better in the late 90s. There was a whole new generation of antipsychotic meds come on board. Um, and Clozaril is the flagship drug of that era, along with Risperdal, Quietapine. And now you can be working next. If somebody checking you out your groceries at the grocery first, you go to the checkout line with a human in it. That person could be in the institution 30 years ago. I, I mean, that's amazing. I think that's probably true with a, a lot of things. So it comes on, was it, when we mentioned just to go back a little bit in the history, you know, post-Civil War um, and right after the Civil War, it, was there a big influx when we had our world wars? Did, did people go there as a result of that? Oh, yeah. Every war leaves its walking wounded. And if you just go back to the cemeteries, you see all kind of veteran graves. 
we've got 60 or so Civil War veterans and about as many World War One and Two. Um, every it seems like every other tombstone has a flag on it, and those were soldiers. So uh, there's one place in the Middle Age Cemetery. I call it that because there's actually three cemeteries at Athens. The one right there on the grounds is the old cemetery. The one out on the hill is the Middle Age Cemetery. It's behind it on the way to the dairy barn. That's yes, yes, that okay. one. Uh, there's a place where there are three graves in a row. It's a Civil War, Spanish-American War, and World War I soldier all laying there where they could stretch out their arms and hold hands if they weren't in their coffins. And that, to me, always kind of stands out as one of the most historically significant spots on, on those grounds, um, along with those grave for sure, maybe two that are um, Mexican War veterans. That was... 10 years before the Civil War. Wow. Is and male and female or just male? Male soldiers. Um, you're still in an era when it was, you know, females in the army were mostly confined to nurses. In general, was, was it both male and female there? Oh, yeah. Okay. But statistically, um, the patient population, when I started working there, and I don't know what it was going back in time, but when I started working there, it was about two-thirds female. Is, is the other way around for some reason. I don't know. I guess movies portray it that way. Well, um, there's a, let me make sure in my mind that it was two-thirds female, not male, because now you got me wondering. But the point is, males um, kill themselves more successfully, and females botch their suicides more often. Um, and you have a tendency to get psychiatric care after such a thing, especially back in time. So discrimination, it's because of behavioral outcomes that are gender based. Got it. Did they have children there? Did people give birth and raise a family? That's a good open question. That's one uh, I really don't know. There, I know that um, one patient got pregnant when Billy Milligan was there. They accused Milligan of, of being the father. He may have been. I don't know. But they had to ship that lady out to have the baby somewhere else. Got it. I never knew anybody that had a baby up there. I never knew any babies that lived with any patients. And someone told me, well, Roz, our, our co-host was here, and she said she was she went up there as volunteer work. And she went, I guess, in the basement. And, and there were almost appeared like cages that she assumed they kept people in. I don't know if that's true or not. Like, was anything like that? Maybe it was just livestock, probably, or... Well, here's the thing. If you're looking for places where they hung the chains, you'll find a lot of old gas pipes and stuff like that. People walk into the basement with this Amon Dracula's castle basement kind of mindset. And anything you see looks like what you're expecting to see. I've been in the basement too, and there are no places in there. There are little rooms with little, little domed over doors with little, nobody, uh, no written records and no old timers ever say that anybody was actually housed down there. Got it. But here's what happened. I told the student nurses about, you know, they didn't hang, have patients in chains. And if they, even if they did, they didn't hang them on walls. Right. There's a myth that, you know, they chain you up at night, click, click, and then hang you up. And so one day some student nurses came up and said, hey, man, you lied. We saw where they hung the chains. I know where this is going. I thought, oh, take me there. 
So we go down an abandoned hallway and we look through a window, scratched up and fogged, and the hallway is dark. But when your eyes adjust, you see metal pipes sticking out from above the doors. And they said those, those bars sticking out, that's where they hung the chains. You know what they were? There were half inch gas pipes, black steel gas pipes capped off at the end. And I've got pictures of that same living area when those gas lights are, are there. I've got pictures from the 1880s, <laughs> the gas lights. They left the pipes sticking out. Now, is that the common misnomer you think that people thought this was a terrible, you know, you're meeting the, the worst devil or whatever inside there? Or what are some other misnomers that you have to clear up when you give tours? Well, um, you know, there's a mix of real bad stuff and stuff that's supposed to be true, but it ain't. Like, one thing I would say to not, I mean, you can't make it sound like La La Land. For, for it's not a Disneyland for anybody. There were uh, places in the basement where they did hydrotherapy. I'm not familiar with it. Where they, uh, it started out a hot tank, cold tank, hot tank, cold tank, shock your system into being more sane. It ended up being where they would wrap you in a blanket and then dump hot water or cold water through the blanket or on the blanket. And uh, that started back in the eight, 1800s because there was war data to suggest that when you, uh, un, if you're psychotic, if you're schizophrenic and you undergo physiological shock, when you recover, you're more sane. You're talking about low, you know, unconscious, lowered heartbeat, lowered respiration, really shock. If you can get them back, they'll be more sane than they were when they went into shock. This was borne out by uh, army work in World War One. So how are you gonna shock people to, and bring them back safely became the question. And part of it is um, heat and cold, hydrotherapy, um, another, um, that's a hasslesome, it's burdensome tea just for everybody. Um, not that productive, really. Uh, you get there faster with an excess of insulin. Throw somebody into diabetic shock. Wow. But that's medically more treacherous. So the easiest way to put someone in shock is with electrodes on the head. And there was plenty of that going on in the 40s and 50s. Um, we at the Southeast Ohio History Center, we've got not one, not two, but three old wooden boxes, pop it open. It turns out to be an electric shock machine. And you can plug in the headset and plug it in the wall and adjust your frequency and, and your watts and volts and amps. And they actually had three of these things that could be grabbed and dragged up to the patient's bedroom on moment's notice if necessary. Shock therapy was unfortunately very common. Um, and uh, also Athens is rather infamous for hosting uh, Dr. F uh, the lobotomy guy. I know you're talking about, he's the one who went on tour kind of and made a, a show of it and kind yes. of got, got some wrongful deaths. But, but real quick on the shock therapy, I always thought the shock therapy was just to kind of tranquilize someone, like zap their system. I didn't realize it was kind of to bring them back into reality. That, that, that's really interesting. Well, shock system with electricity is done in a whole series. You have a series 
of ECT, not just one. And nowadays it's still used. That is a that is a treatment mode that has survived until the present. It's still kind of the gold standard for certain aspects of schizophrenia. Um, and you get a, like a series of maybe 10 electric shocks. We don't do it at Athens at Appalachian Behavioral anymore because that's uh, medically uh, it, it need, it's medically treacherous and you need some people that are really trained how to handle this. So all ECT candidates are sent to Columbus where they get it at university hospitals at Ohio State University. But therapy is still done. It's just that it's used for a very narrow portion of the depression spectrum now. And it used to be used on everybody. Just maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. But over time, they sieved out the success stories and they still do it for a very low percentage of uh, depressed individuals. I actually saw a guy walk in one time and ask for it over the microwave system. I was in Columbus and watching with jaw dropping amazement as this guy come in. He's an old, maybe 60 year old kind of guy. And he, they said, uh, we understand, sir, that you would like some shock therapy. And he said, yeah, uh, that's what I'm here for. They said, uh, do you, would you please tell us a little bit more about how you came up with this desire? And he, he said, well, uh, I've been a normal guy all my life. And I got to be about 40. I was a, a farmer locally here, owned my own farm. And I started getting depressed. I started not having any energy in the morning. I started drinking too much. I started doing this and that. And I couldn't, before long, I was stuck on the couch for days at a time. So my my kids got me to a doctor and he got me some electric shock therapy and it all went away and I was fine. And that was over 10 years ago. He says, but now I'm getting pretty moody. <laughs> I'm getting pretty paralyzed and, and if we do that again, I should be okay. He was fearless about it. He just walked in and said, I need some ECT. And they had to almost try to talk him out of it. Eventually, I think he got his ECT, but they had to send him to Columbus. ECT, by the way, means electroconvulsive therapy because the first thing that happens when you get the blast of electricity is you have a seizure. Whenever you have a seizure, you're gonna have this period of time afterwards called a refractory period when you're kind of zombied out for maybe half an hour. Wow, that's amazing. Now, you mentioned, before we get into the lobotomies, what were some of the other, um, I, I guess, uh, archaic methods? I mean, did they give people in a leech bed and say, suck the crazy out of them? Like, what, what other treatment? Uh, they stopped using leeches long, long time ago. By the way, the doctor who, who invented lobotomies, well, he didn't invent them. He perfected the transorbital lobotomy. His name was Dr. Walter Freeman. And he practiced out of Washington, D.C. He turned into the Apostle Paul of the lobotomy religion. He would drive out two or three days at a time, visit state hospitals all over the eastern half of the country, and he would do lobotomies when he got there. Wow. And then he'd pack up and go to another state hospital in the other part of the state. He came mostly to Athens when he came to Ohio. And they had beds lined up down the hallway. They He is... Uh, documented to have done 34 lobotomies in one day in 1953. And anecdotally, they say he did 40-some lobotomies um, at, on an earlier uh, date. 
So this lobotomy business was really out of control. He was trying to teach, he would get a bunch of people in the room all at the same time. And he would show you how to move over the eyeball, stick a knife or an egg beater type instrument in there, knife up the connections, back out, patch them up, get them out of here, who's next? And um, so people at the time even thought, this is crazy. You're trying to play God. You think you can carve the insanity out of people with a knife. Who, who, who you think you are? This is horrible. And he would say, uh, what are you doing to try and help people who are mentally ill? Did it help? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think of it again. All I know is from movies and such that it kind of puts you in that comatose state is what I, again, I've never seen anyone in real life, but was there any positive to it? Yeah. Um, you were more compliant with just about all kinds of behavioral expectations. You didn't have, however, so you wouldn't fly off the handle and get really violent or interpersonally destructive with a lobotomy. Uh, on the other hand, you lost your sense of humor completely. <laughs> so that was sort of a side effect. So uh, Freeman did his very last lobotomy sometime in 1954. 55 was when Thorazine was introduced. And right off the bat, the whole uh, psychiatric community stopped doing lobotomies. Thorazine had some unfortunate side effects, but man, it was so much better than doing psychosurgery. They had learned about this from World War I when people got shell, shell uh, injured by shells and their head had trauma. They would often seem calmed down and more rational and the uh, intentional going in and cutting this one piece of the brain started in Portugal. And they would cut out the uh, piece of your skull, go in and do the lobotomy. Our man Freeman, working with an endless supply of corpses in the morgue at Washington, DC, he figured out how to move over the eyeball and go straight in from the front. Oh. So he started doing them dozens at a time. Um, and eventually he was put out of business by the new medicine. It was the first time the human race had found any drug. And all the bushes and shrubs and mushrooms and bark potions on planet Earth, nothing helps schizophrenia. And it was a third string back shelf antihistamine uh, that, that, that became Thorazine. Why the, some of the drowsy side effects like Benadryl, it makes you drowsy. Were most of the patients schizophrenic then? Just yeah, that would have been at least half, probably closer to two thirds of the patients suffering from schizophrenia. They may be suffering um, also from mood disorders like what we now call bipolar at the time was manic depression, um, regular depression. There's various neuroses and um, psychoses that are kind of free floating described by their symptoms, but not commonly looked at as a diagnostic category. There's a, there's a thousand ways to be mentally ill. Well, how did, uh, um, back to the history of it, um, well, I mentioned the Hocking River, but did they change it around? When was that? That was 68 through 72. And did we see a decline after that, or did they stay? There well, it was already on the decline when that happened. Thorazine was started to be used in the late 50s. And other drugs, Melaril, Stelazine, there were clones of Thorazine. They were introduced throughout the 60s. Discharges uh, all the time. 
So the population was down from about 1800 in 1954, down to maybe 500 by around 1970. Is about 300 when I was there in 1978. Kept inventing better drugs and they kept giving them to people and the people suddenly developed behavior that was um, under the bar. You know, you can't lock them up because they're doing too well. And uh, then in 1968, a whole nother thing happened. And that is uh, uh, the Mental Health Act of 1968 was passed. And it says, okay, we're accumulating all these ex-mental patients in our communities. They're mostly kicked out of the state hospital nearby, but you know, uh, there's a lot of them now. And also we're beginning to treat people with them drugs that never went in the hospital in the first place, right? So right. we need clinics in the community that people can get to on a bus, the people that's nearby where people live, and they don't need to go in the institution. I grew up calling it an institution. Uh, it stopped being an asylum well before the year 1900. It was a state hospital, 1800s. So um, you got the um, Community Mental Health Act creating community mental health clinics. And as time went by, there were revisions and the latest uh, revision is, uh, which happened around the year 2000, is that these mental health clinics have to approve admission to a state psych facility. If they can treat the person in their clinic, they have to do it there. They cannot allow the admission of someone who can be treated in a less restrictive environment. Well, now I imagine though, the time when you know everyone was probably just mentally ill and then they said hey you're bipolar or manic depressive and then in today's world I, I just assume that there's a lot more diagnosis medicines got better so they can pinpoint issues a little that is correct and that's what's happening nowadays and so that's another reason for the decline i guess you know just uh advanced in medicine uh -huh. 1800 people living here anymore right um it's uh mental illness it strikes about the same percentage of humans anywhere on earth. Um, there's about maybe 5%, one out of 20, would get relatively moderately mentally ill, if not worse. All of us have, you know, our bad moods, but about one out of every 20, something becomes a problem in your daily coping skills. And if you're in this hardcore 2% schizophrenia range, uh, you need intervention for sure. And no one's going to argue that. Don't send them to an institution. Yeah, you better get, well, there's no such thing as an institution anymore, but there are very competent psychiatric hospitals. By the way, I grew up right across the street from the big one in Columbus. And I used to ride my bike around the chain link fence. Um, and we could just, we, we called it the institution uh, in our neighborhood. And um, we used to play a form of volleyball over the fence with a combination of the patients and the staff that were out in the yard at the time. So I, I've grown up all my life with these kind of places in my background. It, it tickles me, but pisses me off at the same time that people say, oh, I've been up there. It's so spooky. It's horrible. It's revolting. It's weird. I can't stand it. I'm like, man, that's the best architecture you've ever seen. It's the best architecture we ever had in this small town, building for the behavior of some of the patients. 
that's interesting because it's particularly growing up and seeing it there because uh you know i would think the same thing even when i went to school there it was like oh man and it seems like people we, we saw people walking the street older folks that looked a little disheveled and we assumed that they were just from the um, mental hospital and got a pass for the weekend is that it would they wouldn't do that without some family member picking them up and signing them out okay but they could end up walking around uptown by themselves when brother joe goes in the store and says hey just hang out i'll be back shortly or, or brother joe goes in the bar because patients uptown on a on a town pass ain't supposed to go to bars <laughs> you could have people out and about um I would also note, though, that there's a whole other population of people that are, uh, used to be called mentally retarded. Today, we know them as developmentally disabled. And our place was never a big treater of those kind of folks, but they're always around in any town. If you're bad enough in that, clinically in that area, they send you nowadays to Gallipolis or Cambridge, where they have developmental centers. And those people, everybody, if you saw them on the street, you might think they were from Athens but they're not, but it's a common, you know, perception that anybody that looks like they ain't quite right in the head, they must be from the Athens asylum. That's what we sure thought. That'd be right three fourths of the time. Yeah. When we talk about the history, so such a beautiful building. Um, and, and then it, it early nineties, it's no longer, uh, the hospital housed there. What happened to it? Did people want to buy it? The university now has it, but was there ever private ownership? Like, That'd be a fantastic house. Um, was it? What's the history like post shutting down? Well, um, it's a mixed prognosis. OU took over the building because it was basically offered to them for ten bucks, and they said, "Well, we'll take the land and do. We'll make decisions later about the buildings." So it was impressed upon them that that building is culturally and historically significant. And don't even think about tearing down the main Kirkbride. Right. But they talked about tearing it down practically right away or modifying it so it's not recognizable anymore. Oh. Then people go to Senate subcommittee hearings and city council and board of trustees. And they uh, seem to have a truce for a while that the main Kirkbride building and maybe six or eight of the best cottages must be saved. But there's funky little buildings out back that you can tear down if you have to. Lately now, what happened was the Kennedy was given the big central hallway, uh, the, what we call the main administration building where the towers are. That's safe because it's the Kennedy Museum. OU took the East Wing sticking out and did a $16 million renovation a couple of years ago. So that part of the building is safe. What's not safe is the West Wings and they are spooky cool inside with the classic, uh, you know, peeling paint and grotesque shadows of bars on the windows. That whole trip is still there for the western half of the building. And OU has hinted recently that it might just let it go back to nature, as they say. And, um, but anybody, if there's private money that would step up and say, hey, OU, we want to buy that part of the building off of you. They'd sell it right now. Or if there's a foundation that would raise money for the renovation. Other places like it in the country, Kirkbride buildings that are still standing, they get turned into malls. 
and they get craft shops and breweries and you know everything that's on the hill need a walkway bridge which they've also talked about but right now uh ou seems to be suffering from a, a lack of uh both money and imagination in terms of what to do with these old buildings well we're trying to get the new president on i'm going to bring it up to him okay yes please well you are a wealth of knowledge and you give tours there tell us about that if i'm in athens i want to take a tour how would i do that well you contact the uh southeast ohio history center and they organize the tours. I think they're 15 bucks. It's all on the website, they give times. And, and they, we try and do it every month. It, goes, it starts in front of the building. We talk about the whole history of mental illness, 1800s, the idea that um, before asylums, there was nothing. There was worse than nothing. And asylums were a big improvement and it was mainstreaming in its time. Talk about the three major architects that that help to craft the grounds and the buildings. Uh, talk about how patients are treated. Uh, work therapy, obviously, in the early days. Uh, crude but effective drugs in the 1950s. Really good stuff nowadays. Um, talk about um, some of the anecdotes of some of the more colorful patients. And I got to know some of the most colorful patients because they're the ones uh, walking around outside all day or inside. It's the ones they had grounds privileges. Um, when I was there running the education department, um, there were several different movement levels you could get yourself into. One of them was a lock to locked. If you're locked to locked, you can't be outside or off of a locked area at all. That means you probably got charges pending or you're sent there by a court or or you should be, or you will be. But the next level was what they called grounds privileges. And you can wander about uh, certain hours, maybe like nine to 11 a.m., come back, eat lunch, go back out from two to four, that kind of thing. Um, those were patients that everybody knew where they were all the time. They always talked about where they were seen, what they seemed to be doing while they were walking around. But um, the, there was also, um, off-grounds privileges. Typically, you have to be with activity therapy on a field trip of some kind. And some patients could go out, get in their cars and go to work as long as they came back in the evening. Well, those are typically people that were at the tail end of a successful treatment and the judge just didn't want to completely let go. So they give you a level five, which means you got to check in every other day or something like that. Yeah, Patty Mitchell was on. She lived there as a, a student and said that her job was to get in the van and she would take people out and they just drive wherever they felt like. Uh -huh. it was very uh -huh. Like, and that's a the famous old van therapy. Yeah, that sounds like a great one. Boy, that's a yesteryear. I ran the volunteer program for like 15 years. I was still running it part time after I retired from full time staff ed work, and I will tell you. There ain't no volunteers driving no vans with no patients in them anymore at all, ever. Liability city by today's standards. Oh, definitely. That's clinical malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly do know a lot. And I'm so excited to have, a, have you tell us a story and tell us your Athens story. Now, we always like to talk about your favorite part of Athens. We always say Athens is this magical, unique place. Do you have uh, maybe memories? from the hospital or just what you like most about Athens in general? Uh, I liked from Athens in general, I liked the fact that um, you could go swimming outside 
the city in certain places. And every summer we had two or three places we could go swimming outside the town about five minute drive. That's always nice when you can do that. Um, I would say that the fact that it's a small town means that there's minimal light pollution. And my old hobby of astronomy got kickstarted with my community class. And now OU's paying me to teach astronomy classes at night. So I love the dark skies of a small town. Um, and as far as mental health goes, uh, there was a guy up there that I will always love and everybody who knew him revered him. He was the like icon of the whole place. And he was an old guy with a big giant beard and he worked on the grounds. He dug out stumps after the trees had been cut down. He pruned the back bushes. He did that forever, it seems. He was admitted around 1920 something and he said, I knew they weren't going to let me go because I could do the farming so well. And he was right. They never discharged him, even in the time of deinstitutionalization, when he is at, at worst just worried well. But he lived there. He enjoyed that. He, he, he did all the uh, landscaping type work. And then they eliminated patient labor completely. So he went on a hunger strike and he was losing weight and getting sick. And the legislature, a couple of years later, they passed a law restoring patient labor, provided that it's done under sheltered workshop guidelines. So he got his job back and he started eating again and he got healthy. Everybody by this time realizes this is a man of intense and uh, unique and intense spirit. So he was still doing this all the time I worked there. They wanted to get rid of all the geriatric patients. So they, uh, outplaced every single one of them except for him. He refused to cooperate with the outplacement process. He told him, this is my home. I've worked here all my life. You can't just kick me out. And he backed him down. He got the bureaucrats to back up and confer about this. He, he doesn't want to get outplaced. He won't go into a nursing home or a rest home. So he stayed in this hallway where his bedroom was one of about 12 or 15 bedrooms. They remodeled the hallway except for his room. Oh. And moved him to a room next door that was remodeled. Then they remodeled his room. Then they moved him back. Then they started moving professional staff like social workers and psychologists into this hallway. All these professional offices and one old guy living there who refuses to leave. And um, they won't do anything. They don't, can't exactly handcuff him. That would be not be right. So he's still living there when the administration changed and the new guy said, this old guy doing what? You, you say there's still a patient living there from the geriatric unit that's been dissolved by five or six years by now? Well, see, we had resident volunteers. That's what Patty Mitchell did. You can live up there, get room and board, and probably work, you know, complete grad school that way. Well, I talked about it in respect to that patient. And they said, uh, we can't discriminate resident volunteers on the basis of age, can we? Hell no. Let's make the man classify as a resident volunteer. So there's like six college students and him. And he's an 80 year old resident volunteer who does the groundskeeping work every day. Thank a heartless, cold son of a gun 
who was, became the CEO, got him dragged out of that place and put into a nursing home down in Adams County where he died shortly thereafter. Oh, that's sad. But once along the way, one moment, uh, I will always treasure. My wife and I had found out she is pregnant. Phone call, middle of the night, friend that works at the medical lab. Hey, you're, the rabbit died. Sandy, you're pregnant. Oh my God. So we got up and we went into town, had some breakfast and she had to drop me off at work. She drive the car up the little brick driveway in the back. And it was uh, middle of September, the fog around the river was real thick. And as I got out of the car, out of the swirling mist up ahead, walks Father Time. He's got a big giant flowing white beard, an ancient hoodie, and he swear to God had an actual scythe over his shoulder walking out of the swirling mist. And it was that guy, it was that old patient. For me at that moment, freshly pregnant, it was Father Time walking out of the swirling mist. It was creepy cool. What a great, that's, a, that's one of our best Athens stories of all, I think. That, that's fantastic. Well, George, again, I wanna thank you so much for being on, on the show. And it was really great. I can't uh, wait to share this story because everyone, you're right. Everyone has all these uh, misnomers about the institution. When I went there, I delivered subs. And I remember I worked for Hole in the Wall going there. I was scared to death. Like I'd go, you know, I'd drop it off. Hey, how you doing? The nurse's station. And then I'd get back to my car and I didn't dare go wander around. Yeah, we're all subject to that. You see a few movies and next thing you, you know, you're thinking it's haunted or, or whatever. <laughs> By the way, that's another thing I'll mention real quick. I've had to do training programs at night. And I had time off in between sections and I could uh, get into the abandoned parts of the building. I knew ways that I could get into the abandoned parts of the building. I went looking for ghosts on purpose. I was calling them out and none ever came. So I don't happen to believe that there's a, that it's haunted or that there's any ghosts there because man, I, I was so vulnerable and cocky that they could have left me hanging upside down with duct tape around my head and there would have been nothing I could do about it. <laughs> oh, and you're there for the right reasons. They're like, hey, we'll let him stay. Maybe, maybe that was it. <laughs> well, thanks again. And uh, when I'm in Athens, I'm definitely gonna look you up and hopefully we can meet in 3D. Well, hopefully you can go on one of these tours and I can have beers with you afterwards. It, it, it's, it's a plan for sure. Thanks again, George. All right, man.